Thanks, Peter and band. Uh, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks so much for being here today, like Jess said before, especially if you're new. Uh, glad, as always, to uh, have visitors. Thanks for coming today. Um, we are in a sermon series in the Gospel of John uh, in chapter 5 today, so kind of turning the page, new chapter. Uh, we are going to preach the whole book, if you didn't know that, so we'll be in it for some time. Um, but uh, today is that time when Jesus heals a very sick man by a pool in Jerusalem. Some of you may have read this before. Um, and it's a very significant uh, healing in a lot of ways. We'll talk about that today. The way he heals, uh, where he heals, when he heals uh, is all important. I'd say the Bible is, um, John is laden with symbolic imagery. We've been talking about this throughout the series and trying to help you see this. We're, not, we're never every week picking up every rock and looking under it. There's always more, but trying to help kind of show uh, that John has um, a concern uh, to uh, write his Jesus story in this way. The whole Bible does that as well. And it's not just John, of course, but um, we'll see some of that today, though, as well, uh, yet again. Uh, but today's going to be John 5, 1 to 18, an invalid, uh, a sheep gate, and a Sabbath. Um, I had a hard time t- with the sermon title this week, so I just like picked three things in the passage and threw them in there. Uh, there's there's a, lot, a lot more than that going on. But um, the, the location and the day uh, in terms of who's being healed here as well, um, is uh, all significant. Um, in fact, actually, the, the guy who's healed is so sick, I was thinking, not that this is really important to rank the severity of illness, but um, of all the people that are listed that Jesus heals in the Bible, uh, this guy I, is right up there, if not the top, maybe top three in terms of the severity of illness. Uh, he's very, very, very sick, and Jesus just graciously heals him. Very cool story. Um, so we'll see that uh, unfold uh, today. So if you have a Bible or phone app, please feel free to turn there. John 5, 1 to 18. Read it here in full to begin. Verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there in Jerusalem uh, by, is, is in Jerusalem uh, by the sheep gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, and there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. All right, so... Just a few contextual notes here. Uh, Verse 18 is very significant uh, for us for a number of reasons. I'll talk about some of that today. But it is, uh, in the story, I would say it's kind of the moment of the gauntlet throw uh, for Jesus. This is when, in all four gospel accounts, you see the the Pharisees kind of pivot and, and not just 
you know, stand in, in uh, confusion over what he's saying to pivot towards wanting to kill him. And it's over these two things, breaking the Sabbath law and calling himself God. Those are in all four gospel accounts in some fashion. Those become kind of the big, the big two things. And so John is no uh, exception here. All right. A few more contextual notes, though. Uh, one, Bethesda means house of mercy, kind of a cool thing there. Uh, the pool was uh, part of a large two-pool complex outside of the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem, which itself was a gate that led into the temple courts named after the place where sheep would go in order to be examined for sacrifice. All right. So that'll be important later. Kind of keep that in your mind. Uh, traditionally, many Jews then, in regards to the pool, that an, an angel would stir the pool and kind of disturb the water, and that at that point, the waters then held um, miraculous powers. And uh, in fact, some of you uh, keen observers um, may have noticed there's no verse 4 uh, in this passage. Uh, it's probably because the verse 4 was added much later as an explanatory note about this tradition. Um, and I'm not going to go into all the reasons why we know that, but your Bibles probably all have a footnote that at least says what it is in case you were wondering, but just kind of explains the whole angel thing and, and the uh, tradition uh, behind it. Uh, but again, very unlikely original to the original text, and so it's kept out of the Bible for that reason. Uh, but what makes this uh, healing so interesting, and if you didn't know, healing is a, healings like this are a major part of Jesus' pre-cross ministry, uh, everything from the healings like we're seeing today to calling into tombs and demanding that corpses come back to life and everything in between. It's just a big part of what he does. Uh, but what makes this kind of special is that the story is broken down into a healing followed by a catch. And we don't always get a catch to the healings. Uh, not, we don't need them necessarily, but, but John includes the catch to teach us theology. And in this case, the catch is that the healing took place on the Sabbath day. Uh, which creates conflict with the religious rulers. And of course, it's not just the Sabbath, but the man carrying his bed on the Sabbath that Jesus commanded him to do, which is interesting. Uh, and then Jesus saying, I am working. So just so you're clear, it's a Sabbath day, but I am going to work. I am working. So again, clearly a, a, an affronting thing to the Sabbath law. He's very clearly saying, I am not keeping the Sabbath. I am working. And there's a ton of theology in that we'll get to uh, a little bit later on. But again, it sort of lights a fire underneath Jesus' critics, uh, and they sort of, again, pivot to want to kill him because of that and because he's self-deifying. He's saying he's equating himself with God by calling himself the Son of God and, uh, and, and so forth. But again, all of this is here for a reason, uh, and if, um, we say this a lot here, but you know, there's no detail that falls outside the sort of the all-seeing eye of God, you know, his intention with what these stories are trying to say. And so we learn a ton more about the gospel, about this particular healing and what's going on, the whole of Jesus' mission, um, and even like how the whole Bible hangs together. We'll see some of that today too. So, um, and I'll try to cover some of all of that, <laughs> but uh, we'll see. So that's how I want to break down the sermon though, is the healing, just two things today, kind of like the, the passages laid out. The healing followed by the catch, the healing and like, what, how do we, learn, what do we learn about the gospel through the way the healing's described? Again, the when, the where, the how, all that. But then the sort of twist that, ah, oh, it's the Sabbath though. And kind of what we learn here uh, through that. All right? So first the healing. Let me read verse 6 again, which uh, I think is kind of an important verse that summarizes. It says, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? 
All right, so it kind of helps to picture the scene. If you want to back up a bit, I don't know if you guys have read this story before or not in the Bible, but uh, try to get it in your mind's eye. We just read it, of course, but it helps here uh, to picture kind of what this would have looked like. Uh, it says that there was a multitude of invalids. There was this large complex. Um, I was actually pretty lost for words this week in trying to, um, you know, picture how to describe the beauty of this. It, it's just uh, really striking. But basically, the equivalent of the Minnesota State Fair is going on in Jerusalem. Kind of picture that if you're a fairgoer. But Jesus isn't like there for a, you know, a corn dog. He, he's there to heal. And, so, and he, so he locks in on this one unnamed sick man and uh, asks him a question. He asks, do you want to be healed? Which is essentially the same as saying, may I do this for you? Uh, and again, um, wherever you guys are at with the Bible or with Jesus, like, uh, my encouragement is to let the Bible inform who he is to you. Uh, and don't bring your own things. We all bring our own things. But I mean, but try to, try to place those aside and, and let the Bible inform for you who, who is this guy. Uh, what is God like? What is the God of the Bible actually like? Because Jesus says elsewhere, if you want to know what God is like, look at me. When you look at me, you see God the Father. It's quite clear. Right, so this is actually like, this is a broad question about what the Messiah, who the Messiah is, the long-expected one who's going to come and right all wrongs and save us, but also the broader idea of who is God, because he is God's son, an extension of him, right? So, in fact, sometimes when I read stories like this, I think, I would never naturally think about Jesus this way unless the Bible told me to think about him this way. I don't know if you guys think that ever or not, uh, but it, it's why it's so important to read this book and to hear God's voice in it because without it, we'll always, without fail, have a wrong view of God in our minds. We always default to it. I'm saying this to most of you who are Christians here today as well. So this is not just for people who aren't saved yet. I mean, for myself, uh, people who, who actually know the truth, we still always kind of, we're programmed, we're, we're defaulted to having the wrong view or a lesser view maybe of God in our minds until he calls out to us through the written word of the Bible to course correct us. That's why it's so important to know this book. You can't actually know the truth without the Bible. You can't actually grow uh, in your knowledge of grace without knowing the Bible. There's, there's no other way God speaks as clearly as he does uh, other than the Bible and through his people as they have a Bible in hand and love us and speak and disciple and guide and teach. That's how God speaks. There's no other way. And so we have to, we have to know it well. It's an invitation to, to know it well. That's why we preach as well. Uh, but again, he's always better than what we think. You know, I, I think most of you probably woke up today with the idea in your head that your job today is to ask God what you can do for him, and, which is the wrong question to ask. But I'm glad you had it in, in one sense, and I have it a lot too. But I'm glad you had it because you're seeing the Bible push back on that idea with Jesus here saying, not just to an invalid, but to us all, may I do something for you. This is what the God of the universe, this is how he's positioned how he presents as a servant. May I heal you? May I do something for you? Uh, wh what can I do? As he says elsewhere, even quite clearly, uh, almost with a, an apron wrapped around him like a server at a restaurant, he says, what, may I, what can I do for you? It's amazing that, that Jesus asks those kind of questions. All right? Uh, but the invalid, going back to the story, it's interesting. Instead of saying yes to that question, uh, you know, because he doesn't really realize he's talking to God in the flesh, right? And so he doesn't really say yes immediately, uh, but he's kind of, the implied thing is like, well, if, what do you think I'm doing here, right? Like, of course I do, but the problem is when the water's stirred, I'm so paralyzed that I can't move quick enough to get into the water and other people go in before me. 
That's the problem. So it's kind of like representing the problem back to Jesus as, as if Jesus didn't know, you know, and as if, as if the solution's in the water, right, and not in Jesus. But Jesus just graciously listens to him and then bypasses all of that and just tells him to stand up and pick up your mat and walk and, and go home. And, and his crippling condition of 38 years is instantly gone. It's amazing. Um, now, one of the reasons Jesus heals individuals so much and not everyone in a given crowd, like he doesn't hear, it's one person, right, is not to highlight any kind of stinginess with his healing, but to highlight the personalness. Jesus is the son of God. He created this man. He knew he had been there. He knew his story. He knew he had been there a long time. He knew his illness. Um, He knew his suffering, and he came specifically for him, just like Jesus came specifically in the world for you and me. Uh, there's, there's a personal dimension to this of knowing everything about you, knowing you better than you know you, knowing your illnesses, your sins, your trip-ups, your doubts, your fears, your insecurities, uh, your distance from God, knowing the distance and saying, I, I'm, I'm coming your way to heal all of it, to remedy all of it, to mend all of it. Uh, so the invalid then, his story becomes ours. And again, that's the point to these narratives. Uh, they're microcosms of our experience. They're glimpses into his unending grace. They're, they're healings that speak beyond themselves. And in this case, from what I like to call the in-between. So I'm going to talk about this for a few minutes today. Uh, by that I mean it's a story in this section of the Bible that kind of serves as a bit of a bridge between the eras or the testaments. And sometimes when you do that, when you have stories like this, they lean backwards uh, into older stories and show how they're kind of re redoing those stories, but also kind of looking forward in a, in a prophetic and typical uh, uh, type casting uh, kind, of, kind of way. Uh, so when I say backward, uh, then one of the um, seemingly minor details here in the stories that the, that the Bible says the guy was sick for 38 years. You might read that and say, did I need to know that? You know, um, could, could you have said, or could it have said a long time? Or could it have said 39 years? Or one year? Uh, well, in one sense, no, uh, because the, the word 38 comes up one other place in the Bible, uh, and that is in Deuteronomy 2.14, I'll paraphrase, that, that's when the Israelites had camped at Kadesh Barnea, this is a, a, a region just south of the Promised Land after they exodus out of Egypt, if you know that story, for 38 years, that's the, that's the time it comes up. And then they crossed the river Zered and began their approach to the Promised Land, so the one other time the Bible uses this uh, signifier, 38 years, is in reference to Israel beginning their prod into salvation, beginning their slow prod into the promised land. If you remember the story, it's 40 years, right? Well, 38 years was a marker where that's when they started to move because for 38 years they were stuck. They stopped. They camped at Kadesh Barnea. They weren't moving around everywhere for 38 years. They were just there in the desert. They started to move uh, and move ahead. And the theology in this, it's really interesting here, and it's something the New Testament is not shy about elsewhere in places like Hebrews 3 and 4, many other places as well. The prophets uh, highlight this idea even before Jesus comes. But the idea is that John 5 is a picture of another desert wandering. It, it is uh, this time sickness, not uh, physical desert land, but, but sickness. Uh, lasting also 38 years, as we just saw, but, but now the man is experiencing another type of salvation. It's, it's a new kind of promised land entrance away from illness 
into health, away from his paralyzed, invalid condition uh, into wellness. And so what's happening here is Jesus is kind of helping us to see in John as the, the apostle, the author, within the details, these subtle hints that the stories of old are being redone all around Jesus. The stories of exile from God, when they would enter a new land of God's presence where he would be, that whole story is happening over again here. Another 38 is happening. Even Jesus has this story right after his baptism, 40 days uh, in the desert, in the wilderness, when he faced temptation. He also is signifying uh, similar ideas there too. But this man, as a sick sinner, uh, being uh, likened to uh, a 38-year sufferer like Israel suffered, Uh, for that long, uh, were kept out of the land for that long, uh, is no coincidence. Uh, It it is to say that through Jesus, newness is here. Through Jesus, um, exile is ending. Through Jesus, a new type of promised land is, is on the horizon. Actually, add to that the idea that the promised land in the Old Testament was synonymous with rest, the word rest, uh, and how John 5 is happening on the Sabbath, like this man is being healed on the Sabbath, and bam, you have this like biblical theology for the win moment. It gets underlined further and further and further that a new rest is here. We'll talk about the Sabbath in a minute and how that's uh, further unpacked. But that's not the end of it. Uh, so it looks backward with the details, uh, but it also looks forward. Uh, this story looks ahead, and Spencer uh, talked a lot about this last week, so I won't go back into all of it because... Um, Well, it's mostly for time's sake, but um, I know some of you weren't here for that. But I will say this just to recap, that the cross is the trajectory of all things. Whether Old Testament desert wanderings or New Testament invalid healings alike, and everything in between, the cross is where everything is heading. And they're in different points of history. One is on the cusp, and one is hundreds and hundreds of years before. But everything, the events, the history, the scripture, All of them serve the purpose of Christ, and they describe what he's here to do. They describe his mission. So then the cross, you could say, is how we enter our heavenly promised land. Uh, It's where we find true healing. Um, Physical healings then, and Jesus is quite clear on this, that this is how we are to read them in his ministry, that physical healings are types of spiritual healing. Uh, this is why he uh, sometimes forgives the sins of a cripple before he heals the, par- the paralysis, because that's the greater problem. Uh, and, and, he's, and he says in, at the end of Mark 2, and I think Spence maybe mentioned this as well last week, but at the end of Mark 2, where we kind of read part of that today, actually, in the reading, but how um, he, he likens sick and sinner, uh, healthy and righteous. It's kind of like lined up. You guys remember that in, in Mark 2? It, he's, he's saying, this is what's happening. When I'm physically healing somebody, I'm showing you symbolically that a time is coming where that spiritually will happen for all. That's that's how we we must, we have to read the stories this way or we do something that Jesus uh, is saying we shouldn't do. Like he's he's telling us how to read the Bible. It's like best Bible lesson ever, right? The Son of God telling us why these things are written this way. And so when you you have that kind of overarching thing, um, the details then I think need to follow. And um, and fallen underneath to show us and kind of paint a picture for what exactly spiritual healing would be like. If physical healing happened with these details, then maybe spiritual healing also has these kind of details and truths um, as well. Oh, and I forgot to mention too, uh, you see it here in verse 14. 
where Jesus says, see, later when he finds a man in the temple, see your well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. And in one sense, Jesus is saying, let this love and grace and mercy that I'm showing you transform your heart. Like, let it shape you. Uh, live in light of it uh, every single day of your life. Remember it. In another sense, we learn a lesson, and that is there's something worse than lifelong sickness. Like, do you guys believe this? Did you, did you know this? Do you believe this? Do you think you really believe this? It's actually something that Christians, I know I just forget. Quite, I don't feel like I'm kind of like pragmatically living out of that idea sometimes in terms of like the weightiness I feel about my life's problems. But Jesus is saying this, like there's something worse than your 38-year illness. There just is, and it's sin. That's worse. Uh, an eternal hell is worse than 38 years of paralysis. I mean, in one sense, logically, that makes sense, right? But Jesus is not, uh, in the way that John here is writing this, it makes it clear that in the way Jesus talks, um, sin is the, bigger, is, is the bigger scourge. And that's what Jesus is really here for. Uh, hell is the bigger state of spiritual paralysis forever away from God, the greater exile, and that's what he's here to correct. Otherwise, these statements make absolutely no sense in the world. Jesus didn't come just to heal people physically and to mend the poor. He didn't do that. He came to spiritually do all of that for all people. And John is trying to make this, he's at pains to show this, that our problems are not what we think sometimes. We, we think we know what our problems are, but we just don't. And so Jesus says, sin no more, that's nothing worse. Like, can you imagine the guy like hearing that and thinking, what, nothing worse? What's worse than 38 years of uh, sitting by that pool, but there actually is. There actually is, and um, the worst thing is death. The worst thing is being far from God and not saved. All right, so going back to what I was saying then, um, the details then fall in underneath this, and I think you see, you know, when John 5 says there's blind, lame, and paralyzed people, like elsewhere in the Bible, Jesus talks about those kind of things in spiritual terms, like in Revelation 3 to the church, when he says, you guys think that you're that you're well off, that you're clothed, that you're rich, but you don't know, you don't remember that you're blind, poor, pitiable, and naked. And you have to know that or you'll never reach out for Christ. And the church is actually wandering uh, from him. That's another sermon. But you, you see some similarities there that the invalid's status is our status spiritually. And, and maybe some of us are paralyzed or we are incredibly sick of chronic illnesses and that way we line up as well. It's not to like completely... Um, take the focus off the physical. It's just to say that all of us, whatever, no matter how healthy we are, we are all an invalid on, on a spiritual level. I think you also see, uh, if this is true, and it is, uh, then the immediacy of salvation. When Jesus um, addresses his illness like that, if that's true physically, then the idea here theologically is that's true spiritually as well. Like when you cry out for salvation, it's instantly done. Isn't that amazing news? Like, salvation's not a process. The Bible never says salvation is a process or a journey that you sort of start a path on as if it's like, um, you know, like you're, yeah, on a pilgrimage or like a walk or like you're learning. Or, I mean, obviously, we live out of that. It has implications for every day. Of, we live out of the immediacy of the fact that we're saved. But if you ask for forgiveness, you instantly have it. Not after you get your life together. Not after you believe in it a little bit more than how you currently believe in it. Not after you understand grace a little bit better. Not after your theology is perfectly aligned. I mean, that's like best news ever, right? Like God loves you. He loves us and his gift is immense 
It's immediate. The last thing I think we see is uh, this idea of Jesus versus the pool, epic showdown, right? Um, but it's, I, I think in that we see a principle of grace where um, Jesus is, is uh, contrasting himself, right, uh, against the supposed healing powers of the water when, when it was stirred. One thing I like about John 5, Jesus here, is that you, um, you, you don't see Jesus say, oh, you want to be healed? Well, then, great. Let me hold the crowds back with my hands so the problem of you not being able to get in the water first is solved. Notice he doesn't say that, right? Like, oh, you want to be healed? Well, I can tell people to wait and let you have a turn. I can hold them back physically with my hands so you can get in the water and have time to. That's not what we see. Jesus bypasses the pool. He, he replaces the pool, which is the same thing as, you know, saying to us, and I think the invalid doesn't understand this, of course, because, you know, when he's, at, when he's asked the question, um, do you want to be healed? He says, well, yes, but I need to do something, and I can't. You guys see that? I need to get into the water. That's the same as like us saying, yeah, I want to be healed, but I need to do something for God. I need to... Um, I need to be a good person. I need to keep his commandments. I need to move toward salvation with my physical body. That's not the gospel. It's not Christianity. Christianity is saying, no, you're, you're paralyzed you're, or you're a corpse in a tomb and God in his love calls, calls you into life and he replaces the water with his blood. He replaces the need for you to move with him moving. You know, the, the gospel is not let me help you help yourself. God never says that. That's great news too, right? The gospel is not God helps those who help themselves. That's not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus replaces our helping ourselves. He replaces it completely with his blood, bloody body. He replaces the pool like he replaces washing rites of the Old Testament and the wholesale need for sinners to achieve moral perfection in order to be saved. All right, then let's move on to the catch. Uh, the story goes on, right? There's more to say but, um, about the healing, but that's, that's the gist. And now John says, um, there's one more thing to say, and it's that that day was the Sabbath. So Saturday of the week, uh, the Jews observed the Sabbath on a Saturday, And verse 10 says, The Jews said to the man who had been healed, It's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered him, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. Okay, so John's doing more contrasting here, right? John's contrasting Jesus not just with the pool, but Jesus with the Sabbath. Uh, The the day of rest that Jews were commanded to observe weekly, if you didn't know what that was. And you see quite clearly in verses 10 to 11, The law says don't take up your bed, but Jesus says, take up your bed, right? It's sort of like this stark thing. The law says, don't carry something uh, uh, on, on the Sabbath day, and Jesus says, actually, I'm, I'm, I'm saying this to you, take up your bed and walk. So it's kind of like, okay, well, who's right? And we know who's right, but it's, it's a tension, right? Now, I don't have time to go into too much of the minutia here. If this was like a class on the Sabbath, we could spend, I mean, almost hours talking about this from a scriptural and historical vantage point, but we don't. Uh, but I will say this, that, that some like to point out here that um, the Old Testament Sabbath laws didn't literally say that you can't carry a piece of furniture. So the Jews who had concerns must have been referring to 
outside of the Bible tradition from the Mishnah and other places um, like that. And there's some truth to that. Uh, Jesus wasn't a big fan of man-made tradition that fell outside the Bible. We know this, or maybe you didn't know that, but you do know. Uh, it comes up a lot. So, um, but I don't think, though, that that position alone matches the extremeness of Jesus in the gospel accounts. Actually, before I even say this, you do see in the Old Testament, a man was stoned to death for carrying wood on the Sabbath, which is not that different, right, from carrying furniture. And so you have to kind of reckon with things, stories like that as well. Um, I think they actually do line up. But, I'll, but I'll, I will say this. Whatever your view on that is, um, Jesus is extreme here. And John the Apostle, the way he's writing, he's not really holding punches. Like in verse 18, it says Jesus broke the Sabbath. Jesus is not breaking man-made traditions or the idea that man kind of changed the Sabbath a little bit away from what God intended. He's not breaking that. He's actually breaking Sabbath law, not breaking tradition, but breaking Sabbath law uh, by the man, but especially Jesus, which we'll come back to here uh, in, in a second. And elsewhere, Jesus likens himself, like in places like, I think it's Mark 3, uh, to David, uh, King David in the Old Testament, when he did something, quote, unlawful, Jesus' words, in eating the bread of the presence in the temple, which only priests were to eat, but David was not punished for it. And Jesus quotes that story in a similar kind of context to Pharisees to say, didn't you read this story ever and wonder what was up with that? And what Jesus is saying is, what you should have thought is that a time was coming, even the Old Testament saying this, a time was coming when the Sabbath and when the law itself um, would be passed up by a law usurper in the line of David, uh, son of David's coming, who is coming to replace and fulfill the old ways. Um, if you don't know that story, that might have been a little bit confusing, but uh, read Mark 3, I think it was Mark 4. I forget what, chapter 2? Well, anyway, you can find it. Uh, but a very helpful thing that Jesus does there with uh, what he cites to argue for why it's okay now to work on the Sabbath, because he's the Sabbath, all right? Now, regardless of your perspective, though, on, on that, he, here are the things that we must affirm. So some of that you might not be convinced of yet. That's fine. Um, you know, we have a perspective here on these things in general, but, like, there are, there's some open-handedness there, I think, Christian to Christian uh, in the minutia. But regardless of your perspective on that, here are three things I think we can at least generally affirm or should um, from what Jesus is doing here and how John is writing about this healing. The first is this. Sometimes the rules get in the way of the gospel. Uh, the, the, the Pharisees' response here to the healing is the greatest eye roll of all time, right? I mean, this guy is an invalid for 38 years. He's miraculously healed. It's a party. And the Pharisees bicker about him carrying his bed. I mean, talk about a Debbie Downer, right? Uh, talk about burying the lead. Talk about someone you'd never want to have a beer with, you know, ever. Like, ugh, what a stodgy, you know, rule-based, angry, just meanie, you know? Uh, like, sometimes the rules just get in the way. They just do. That's clearly what's happening here. Their, their, their joy is being stolen. Uh, they're, they're missing the gospel. And I think in the same way rules can do this uh, for us as Christians, uh, they, they can take our focus off the gospel if you're not careful they can certainly seal your joy. So have that in mind. Uh, second um, is that there's no rest for God. 
right? He is working. So whatever you think about the man and him carrying his mat and whether or not he was actually breaking biblical Sabbath law or not, one thing you can't look away from is that Jesus is working on the Sabbath. Clearly, right? It's a Sabbath and Jesus says, specifically, I am working, just so it's clear. Like there's no guesswork around that, right? I, the Son of God, am working. This is what the Pharisees are picking up on, right? They want to kill him for this. So clearly, he's breaking the Sabbath and clearly, he's saying it. Clearly, they're understanding that he means that because that's why they want to kill him. Do you guys see that? I mean, as problematic as that might feel for you, uh, you can't, and it probably should kind of, uh, but in one sense. If you don't know all these things hang together yet, that's fine. But in one sense, this is what's going on. There's a tension, there's a breaking, there's a passing up, there's, a, there's an unlawful act that Jesus has authority to commit. And in verse 17, we see it. Um, and again, I think this tells us that something greater than the Sabbath is here. Something greater than the law. The Sabbath never healed anybody, right? Did the Sabbath ever heal a guy of his lifelong illness? But Jesus clearly does, which leads me to this last affirmation, which is the Sabbath is ending and is being uh, reoriented or replaced around Christ or replaced by Christ, the one who gives true rest for our souls, Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 to 30, and ends our work because we are saved by his matchless grace, not our works. And that's what the Sabbath was all about for all of those years in the old era. Uh, it was meant to be a weekly rhythm of work, 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 rest. Work, 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 rest. Over and over again. So part of what it meant to be a Jew uh, in covenant with God was you're constantly uh, in, in this law-filled, rhythmic motion of work to rest, work to rest, work to rest. But when Jesus comes along, he completes and fulfills that idea. He doesn't ask us to work, but only brings rest. He is the true Sabbath. He's the ultimate manifestation of this law. The ultimate reason it ever existed was for the sake of Jesus. Jesus is not under it. He's over it. Nothing's above God. There's nothing nothing next to God. Nothing's above him. He wrote this law into existence to serve his purpose rather than the idea which sometimes Christians think uh, that Jesus came into the world to serve the purpose of the law. Like that was the main thing and Jesus came in to accentuate it so we would define our lives around it and rather than him. That's a very dangerous spot to be in. Clearly something Jesus is not doing here. He's breaking like a stick over his knee, the Sabbath law, to make a point. That time is ending. The law is ending. And in its wake and place, I am here to give true rest for your, not just your bodies, but as Matthew 11 says, your souls as well. And so like as one of your pastors, I I would say, it's fine if you're not quite here yet. I I want you to feel very welcome here and to be in a spot of processing this. It's totally fine. It's open-handed. But I would say like as a way of leading you guys to green pastures um, and still waters, do not keep a Sabbath law. Like do not do that as a Christian. I would say it's at best, um, is there a best? I don't even know if there's a best. I take that back. Um, I, I guess at worst, it'll inflate you it will, um, it'll crush you, it'll, it'll steal your joy, it'll take your focus off of Christ and put it onto um, the law, which is being passed up here. It'll make you feel bad about yourself, it'll make you compare yourself uh, to others. Now, rest, great, take vacations, take breaks from work, uh, try to 
Move away from workaholism. Those are all good things, right? But that's not Sabbath. The Sabbath law is a different thing, which is why I think you see in Colossians 2, Paul actually say, don't keep the Sabbath. Don't let people like judge you for Sabbath keeping because that time is over. Uh, and so actually see the Sabbath law talked against in the letters of the New Testament uh, as, as well. But again, that's another, another sermon. But all of this, I think, should accentuate the idea that we're all saved by grace seven days a week, not one. Like the idea of uh, you're saved by grace, not by works, is that something to celebrate one day a week or every day? And every day is the Sabbath now. That's the idea. Every day is the Sabbath. It's better than what it used to be, much better. It's been passed up by something better. So don't sell the better thing for the cheapened law that no one could ever keep and were killed, uh, actually, for, uh, for not obeying. That gets us to the final catch, uh, which is... Um, Sabbath aside, the idea that uh, if you look at like what happens to Jesus after the healing, uh, there's also a contrast there and theology therein. Uh, the invalid walks away healed, but Jesus is, quote, persecuted uh, from the end of that passage. That word is used there, right? He's being persecuted, chased, attacked, planned against. The invalid is comfortable, but Jesus is chaste. The invalid is first accused by the Pharisees, but then they turn their law-filled eyes toward Jesus instead and seek to kill him. And so I think what you see here is this, uh, yet again, this repeated theme of substitution. The healing happens in the context with Jesus being persecuted. And um, we, I think we saw it last week as well, but we, we've been trying to show you guys this, that... Um, the cross is being foreshadowed. Uh, the Bible's a book about foreshadowing, if you, if you didn't know that. Like, it just, it employs literary device better than any book you've ever read in your life. And one of the things it does is it, it forecasts or foreshadows the cross uh, in almost every verse, almost every paragraph, uh, at least in every section. And, and you see it here, where the guy is made well, but Jesus suffers. What does that sound like? right? That's your guy's healing. That's my story, your story, if you're a Christian. We've been made well through or by way of Jesus' persecution at Calvary when he died. That's what John 5 is a whisper of. The ultimate's coming. But that's where this is leading, right? They want to kill him. 1 Peter 2.24 says, by his wounds you have been healed. The gospel is not just you have been healed. The gospel is by his wounds or through Jesus' stripes or by him spilling his blood. That's how healing has come, right? That's how we're distinctly Christian, that we believe this, that God is not vaguely, or broadly, vaguely, generally bringing healing. He's specifically bringing healing through his son's sacrifice. He died in our place for us as a willing, loving substitute. And you see it here in John 5. The love, how he looked at this man and knew him, his love for him, but also his willingness to take on the accusatory eyes of the religious rulers and to be plotted against, knowing full well that will eventually lead to his death. This is exactly the gospel, you guys. John 5 is about the gospel. It's not about pools. It's not about physical healings. It's ultimately about substitutionary atonement. It's about the gospel. In fact, uh, do you remember where this healing took place? I'm going to go back to something quick to end here, but um, do you remember where all this took place? I tried to find a good picture of this. Um, I couldn't. But basically, if you have like a, like a bird's eye view of this, you would see um, 
or never mind, we're not in bird's eye view here, are we? Just front view. Uh, but you have the, the two-pool colonnade out here outside the temple in kind of the city proper. You have a sheep gate, which is attached to the temple courts. Then you have the temple inside. And so if you think about that, like where Jesus is in reference to the temple, what the sheep gate, where that was, why that's mentioned, and then you have the temple proper, like do you see what John is kind of doing here geographically? Remember what the sheep gate is for? The sheep gate is where sheep pass through to be inspected for sacrifice. That's where they go to, to be sacrificed in the temple, but inspected first for their purity. They had to be spotless and things like that. See, what John is doing here, if you ask the question later, when Jesus is inside the temple and he finds the guy and says, see you're well, well, how did he get inside the temple? If he's out here, how did he get over there? He went through the sheep gate, right? This is what John is writing. This is how he's writing the story as it progresses through the narrative. And what he's trying to say to this is that Jesus is acting like a lamb. He was acting like a sheep who is going to be inspected for sacrifice, or as John says, who is being plotted against by the Pharisees who wanted to kill him. And so even geography serves the purpose of the cross. The placement, why the gates mentioned at all, why does he have to be in the temple when he sees the man? See, sheep would have done this. And Jesus is there as the ultimate lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, passing through the sheep gate, hinting that a time is coming where he will, in fact, ultimately do that at Calvary. He will be sacrificed as the ultimate Passover lamb. He is a lamb of God. John has already said in this book, so we know what's on John's mind. It's not just coincidence. John is painting Jesus into a sheep or a lamb figure, sacrificial lamb figure, who not to spoil the story, but will die on Passover as a Passover lamb. It is one of the most pronounced themes of the entire book of John. It's right here. And John 5 serves the purpose. It falls subservient to this idea, the geography, that Jesus is the one who passes through the sheep gate of the ages to be killed in our place and sacrificed in love for us. And so this question, uh, do you want to be healed? Uh, it's a great question. And uh, what the Bible is saying is it's not really just for the invalid. It's for you guys. Uh, God is asking you that right now in this very room. Is that something you want? Christian or not, it's the same question. It doesn't matter where you are. The gospel comes towards us on the same level for a Christian or not every day. For Christians, we know, that we know the gospel, right? But it still comes to us and this invitation of our creator, do you want to be healed? May I do, may I do this for you? May I yet again offer you my body and blood as we see in communion every day? But the question has little to do with, again, pools and sickness. It has to do with Jesus saying, watch me get sick instead. Watch me become an invalid. Watch me die on a cross like a lamb led to the slaughter through the sheep gate of hell. Watch me take the brunt. Watch me work so you can rest and have a true forever, everyday spiritual Sabbath by resting in the forgiveness of sins through belief. In the true and better Bethesda, the house of mercy, which is, which is truly the hands of God and the nail-pierced hands of Christ, who hold us gently and with love and with eternal security. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for uh, this passage. Thank you for the grace that is just dripping off of it. Um, I, I pray that you would help some, some detail, some word, some image, some aspect of what John 5 is saying to remain with us for the rest of the day today, uh, to make us think, to make us pause, to make us thankful, um, to reshape maybe uh, the misconceptions we had about the God of the Bible, about Jesus Christ and who he was and what his main mission was, what our greatest problem is. Uh, Spirit, I pray you just prod us in a loving way with these types of questions, these types of things to mull over and worship through and rest in. And so we, uh, we thank you, Jesus, that we're saved by grace, not by works. That's what the Sabbath was ultimately about. And we thank you that we are saved in a state of being an invalid and a paralytic, that we're not movers or that we're not pilgrimage takers. We can't access you or move into the land ourselves, but we need to be carried. Um, so we, anyway, we thank you, God, for this word. I pray you just bless the rest of our morning here. Uh, I pray for this last song and for communion. And um, yeah, just, just be with us, be on our minds, woo us, calm us, calm our fears, and um, help us to understand grace all the more as we leave in Christ, we pray. Amen.